0: I want to start the message with a quiz. What are the four chapters in the Bible in which Satan and his work is completely and totally absent? Four chapters. Give up? All right. The first two chapters in the book of Genesis and the last two chapters in the book of Revelation. That is the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters in the Bible. Satan raises his ugly head in Genesis chapter 3 and his harassing and creating havoc ever since that time until Revelation 20 when he's thrown into the lake of fire. Satan hates the Bible. But Satan hates Genesis and Revelation specifically. He hates those two books more than anything else. (laughs) You know why? Because in Genesis, his death sentence has been pronounced. And in Revelation, his death sentence is carried out. Why on earth do you think that false preachers and false teachers that seem to be on increase of late say that Genesis is a myth and Revelation is a mystery, because Satan, the source of all falsehood, is behind all this false teaching and preaching? Sadly, As I said, the number is an increase, and maybe that's the apostasy that has to take place before the return of Christ. And we're watching it, and we are seeing it today. Satan wants us to doubt the Word of God, especially the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation. But God's Word is the absolute truth, and God is honored when His children... Not only read that word and heed that word, but obey that word and live by that word. When life gets you down, and it does it to all of us, think of the resurrected body. Think of the marriage supper of the Lamb that we saw in the last message. Think of the new heaven and the new earth. Think of the everlasting life and the presence of the Lord Jesus physically, literally, face to face. Think of the mansions in the heavenly New Jerusalem. Think of of the continuous refreshment that comes from the river of life that we're going to look at now. Think about these things. You'll be encouraged. Question Is there experience that any of us have experienced or even wish to experience that will come even close to what we will experience in the New Jerusalem? No way. No way. I have been privileged to see God's creation of all continents. I've seen some of the magnificent parts of creation of God's creation. All of, but I can tell you, none of them would hold a candle to the new heaven that is coming down from heaven. Amen? The word of God is amazingly consistent. 2,700 years ago, The prophet Isaiah said in chapter 65, verse 17, Behold, I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered or come even to mind at all. And 700 years after the prophet Isaiah, the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 24, 35 said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says, By the same word, the present heavens heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. The Word of God is consistent. The Word of God is absolutely true. We saw previously how at the great white throne judgment, Those who have rejected Jesus will be consigned to the second death, the eternal death, without any hope of release, without any hope of escape, without any hope of deliverance. And so today, finally, we come to my favorite part of the Scripture, the joy of believers in heaven, the joy of believers in the New Jerusalem. Everything in the last two chapters of the book of Revelation, everything is brand new. Everything is new. Chapter 21 begins by saying, Then I saw the new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now, that is a very meaningful phrase for the Apostle John. Think with me on this. Imagine John writing Seeing and writing this vision that God is showing him, privileging him to see not only what happened but what is happening, but will what well will happen. And as God showed him this, he was an exile on an island. An island that was surrounded by sea. While you and I may go and enjoy the Aegean Sea and how beautiful it is, but that was not John's case. He was an exile there. And being an exile, he has been separated from his loved ones. He has been alienated from his loved ones. He has been isolated from his loved ones. That is why to him this vision is so dear, is so precious. Not only that, but God graciously showed John the new city, the new Jerusalem coming down from orbit. <laughs> there is no way on God's earth that I can describe this or explain it to you. You can't even imagine. It is, it is in a, it's beyond our ability to comprehend. But the most important thing you know about this new Jerusalem, that city that's coming down from heaven, is that there will be nothing that is going to separate us from Jesus. Jesus. There will not be sin and disobedience that keeps us away from Him. There will be nothing that's going to separate us from our brothers and sisters in Christ. There will be nothing that will separate us, which which comes between us, even among family members, because of sin and because of prejudice and because of personality clashes. None of that is going to divide us because no sin will be there. We're going to be like Jesus. Can you imagine that? Not only that, but Jesus said, we'll wipe away our tears. In the original language, it literally means that he is going to wipe away the every last tear. <laughs> every last tear. What does it mean? It means that in this new Jerusalem, uh, there will be a lot of no's. Now, everybody says the word no is negative. Think about something positive to say. Don't say no. But no can be very positive. (laughs) Listen to this. There'll be no separation, no tears, no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain. All these things are the consequences of sin, and sin will not exist in the new Jerusalem. Can you wait? Amen. (laughs) Listen to me. There will be no cancer in that city, no diabetes, no diseases, no viruses, no broken homes, no broken hearts, no child abuse, no loneliness, no hospital, no funeral homes, and no grieving of any kind in that city. Why? Why? Verse 5 tells us why Jesus is there. Jesus is there. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Jesus asks John specifically to write this down and write it very carefully. Why? Because these are trustworthy and true revelation of God. These are trustworthy and true Word of God that so many people are doubting it today. Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. I was there at the very beginning of the universe, and I will be there when it all comes to an end. I am the living water to the thirsty soul. I am the only one who can truly satisfy you. I am the only one who can make sense out of your senseless life. I am the only one who can give you victory. I am the only one who can make you a child of the living God. And John tells us who is not going to be in heaven? The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts and idolaters and liars, those who change God's word, abuse God's word twist God's Word to serve their purpose and to serve their personal ambition, those who twist the Word of God to suit themselves and to suit their purposes, they will not be there. In fact, Paul repeats the list in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And again, he repeats the same list in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. Watch this. From Revelation 21, 9 all the way to 22.6, you get a magnificent tour of the New Jerusalem, but I'm not a very good tour guide, (laughs) but we're going to take a tour nonetheless. It's going to be fast, so fasten your seatbelt. It's pure crystal, radiates like a rare jewel. It will be lit from within by the glory of God. The twelve gates represent the Old Testament, and the twelve foundations represent the apostles or the New Testament. For those who deny the infallibility of the Word of God, both Old and New scrip- the Testament Scripture, are not going to be there because that city is founded and built on those who believe the apostolic teaching, namely that the Old Testament prophesied that Jesus is coming, and the New Testament said he's here and he's coming back. Now, listen to the incredible size. This city is going to be 1,400 miles high. Did you get that? Okay. I'm just trying to use the imagination. And it's going to be 1,000. 400 miles wide is going to be 1400 miles long that's like from Atlanta to Denver or from the Mississippi to the Pacific Ocean and the volume of this city is more than more than 2.7 billion with the b cubic miles <laughs> No wonder Jesus said, in my Father's house there are many mansions. <laughs> there will be plenty of my 1,400 mile high, 1,400 mile long, 1,400 mile wide is enough room for a few billion ma- mansions. The New Jerusalem is described with very brilliant imagery here. I want you to look at it with me. Jasper, sapphire, emerald, amethyst, pure gold. It's going to shine. I'm assuming it's well over. It must be more than 24 karat gold. <laughs> it's going to shine. You know, the little gold that we wear and, you know, we, we kind of treasure and, and hide somewhere in your freezer or in your safe. But the Bible is saying this stuff that we value so much is going to be as common as a cement pavement that you walk on. That's really what the point here. best part is 22, verse 22. He said, I did not see a temple in that city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. (laughs) Beloved, in the Old Testament, when from the very beginning God told Moses to build a tabernacle, and later on Solomon built a magnificent temple, all of that just simply to say a symbol of God's presence with His people. That's what the temple means. It is symbolizing that God is among His people, that He's present with them. But when the real thing comes, you don't need the representation, right? When the real person shows up, you don't worry about the shadow of that person. The shadow kind of gives you hope, but then when the person appears, you say, that's it. I don't need it. Will not, no need for sun or moon, for his light will illuminate that holy city. Look at verse 27. Nothing impure will enter this new Jerusalem. In the Greek, it would be translated what we call double negative. Absolutely, positively, in no way any detestable thing is going to enter that city. Only those whose names are written in the book of life will be in that city. They will walk in that city, and they will celebrate in that city. In fact, in chapter 22, John describes the river of life the river of life. It's not just like one of those rivers. No, this, no, 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 the symbol is that it's going to be flowing with unbelievable, indescribable blessings. It's just going to keep on pouring. Back in the 19th century, there was a man by the name of Robert Lowry. He wrote so many magnificent hymns that Aaron was referring to some of them. Uh, For example, he wrote the song that we sing on Easter, He Arose. (laughs) He wrote nothing but the blood of Jesus. But he wrote some other hymn that perhaps we don't sing these days, but it was built and based on his vision of the book of Revelation, chapter 22. And I'm not going to sing it for you because I don't want you to leave. (laughs) I want you to stay to the end of the message. It's very important. (laughs) But here's how it goes. Yes, we'll gather at the river the beautiful, the beautiful river, gather with the saints at the river that flows from the throne of God. That river of life flows from the throne, and the believers are going to be gathering around the throne, around that river of life, eternal life, to worship the Lord. And there will be no night there because He Himself is its light. with its beauty and variety, this river of life, will will be a fountain of unending blessing and eternal life with Christ. You see, in the Garden of Eden, God said to Adam and Eve, He said, you know, you can eat from all these trees, but only this one you can't eat from. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what happened, Satan came and tricked them, and they fell for it and became totally depraved in disobeying God and His command." the God that they were fellowshipping with, the God that they knew intimately, they disobeyed him. And as a result of that disobedience came not only spiritual death, but physical death as well. And that is why today nobody could ever live forever. We can't live forever now. But in the new city, in the new Jerusalem, we will live forever and ever and ever. We'll be gathered around the tree of life the symbol of everlasting life, the symbol of living forever. Verse 4 is a profound statement. Look at it with me, please. They will see his face and his name will be written on their forehead. What a profound statement. Let me explain to you why it is an incredibly profound statement that we will see his face because nobody has ever seen the face of God. Even Moses could not see the face of God. But you and I are going to see the face of God. That's why it's a profound statement. I was thinking of how overwhelming that's going to be, to see the face of God. And I thought of a true story that I heard many, many years ago. On October 12, the year 1900, there was a wedding in London, England. The bridegroom. His name was William Montague Dyke. He was the son of a very prominent member of the British Parliament. And he was engaged to a beautiful young lady who was the daughter of, a, again, a well-known admiral in the British Navy. The problem was the groom has never seen the face of the bride, because at the age of 10, accident caused him blindness in both eyes, but he worked hard despite of his handicap and he went to Cambridge University and he graduated with honors. He fell in love with this young lady because of her voice and the touch. And then one of England's most prominent eye surgeons said to his parents and to the young man, William, and he said, I think there's an experiment surgery that I can perform on you that will help you see. He said, okay, I want you to operate on me just prior to the wedding day because I want these bandages to be removed when I'm standing at the altar. And sure enough, he was standing there at the church altar waiting for his bride. And next to him was not a best man, but was this prominent eye surgeon. And as soon as the organist played the wedding march, the doctor cut the bandages from his eyes and removed them. And the first sight he saw was the young woman, after being blind since the age of 10. And all he could say Is at last. And, beloved, I thought about this, and I thought today, it's not the the bridegroom who's blind, but the bride who's blind, you and I, who have not seen Jesus face to face yet. But one day, it may be sooner than any of us think, we will see him face to face. We will see the face of the bridegroom. And our face will shine with joy, crying out, at last, at last, at last, Lord Jesus. 1 John 3, 2 tells us, we shall see him as he is, as he is. Are you ready for that day? Sadly, many Christians are not ready. They've got too many things they want to do in this life. They don't understand the incredible, incredible blessings that awaits us. I pray to God that this series of messages stirred the heart of many, not just here, watching around the world. Because every time I think of our generation, I think of the words of Elton Trueblood, who described it perfectly, so I'm not going to paraphrase him, I'm going to quote him exactly Elton Trueblood said, it used to be that Christianity was a revolutionary faith that turned the world upside down. But today we sit in Sunday morning church services looking at our watches, wondering what time dinner will be served or thinking about the kickoff. And we hope the church won't interfere with the things that we would rather be doing." End of quote. That says it all. Revelation 22, 6 in the la- is the last verse of the prophetic message of the book of Revelation. Jesus said, these words are trustworthy and true. Beloved, all the prophetic events that we have been seeing throughout this book of the Revelation about the return of Jesus Christ will take place with the minutest detail. They will be fulfilled. They will happen just as is said here, because we know that in the Old Testament, all the prophecies about the first coming of Jesus came about exactly as the Old Testament described it, with the minutest detail. And so will the New Testament prophecy in the book of Revelation about the second coming of Jesus. Verse 10, the Lord said to John, don't seal up the words of this prophecy, of this book, because the time is near. This command is in contrast with the command that the angel gave to Daniel in Daniel chapter 12. I know some of you are studying Daniel. And you would say, why the angel said to Daniel, 12.4, but you, Daniel, that's the book of Daniel, chapter 12, verse 4, but you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. But is it to John? Don't seal it. Don't close it. Keep it open. Why? Why? Daniel had to seal it, but John didn't. The answer is found in the Word of God, because Daniel received his prophecy 400 years before Jesus' first coming and establishing of his church. But John received his revelation 60 years after the founding of the church, after Jesus' earthly ministry, after Jesus' death and resurrection, after Jesus forming the church, after Paul writing to the Ephesians and telling them that this mystery, hidden for generations, hidden for years, for, for hundreds of years, is now revealed. You see, in the Old Testament, the church The the whole concept of the church did not make sense. Even the prophets who prophesied were writing according to the Holy Spirit that was guiding them, did not comprehend fully what the church is all about. But now it is revealed. It is no longer a mystery. The church is now in every corner of the globe. The whole world has heard the message of the gospel. And therefore, the Lord wanted his people to know what's going to happen He wants the church to know. And that is why he tells John, don't close it. Don't seal it. Don't hide it. People need to know that I'm coming soon, that the time is near. Then Jesus says something else that is really baffling. Verse 11, Jesus said, let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right, and let him who is holy continue to be holy. What does that mean? Our Lord wants us to know that when our earthly life is over, the dice cast, the decisions that we make in this life is going to impact where we're going to be spending eternity, whether in heaven with Jesus, the lake of fire with Satan. Once you have passed this life, To eternity, there is no second chance. There is no second opportunity. False preachers and false teachers say that in the end, God is going to feel sorry for people and let them in. That is not what the Word of God said. There is no opportunity to repent. There will be no opportunity to repent once those who die in the state of unbelief, they will remain in the state of unbelief all the way to the day of judgment. doesn't give me joy to say that but it gives me a sense of urgency to tell everyone who has not come to come now. You know, when those two criminals hang on either side of the cross of Jesus, what separated them for eternity were basically nine words. Count them. Nine words. (laughs) Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Nine words separated them for eternity, determined their eternal future. Not only determine your eternal future, determine how you live this life. Because I can tell you, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the pain we experience, regardless of the temptation, in this life we have peace, in this life we have joy, in this life we have hope, in this life we know we can look forward to the day when we reign and rule with Christ. You can even pray a much shorter prayer than the criminal on the cross. You can pray with Peter in three three words, Lord, save me. (laughs) Three words, Lord, save me. The Bible said today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. I plead with you, do not leave this place without coming and talking to us at the end of the message if you do not know Jesus as your only Savior. The reason I get choked up and I get so emotional is because I know what's at stake. I read the Word of God. In verse 12, Jesus said, Behold, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. Now, please read my lips. There will be judgment for believers. Did you get that? Now that I got your attention, let me finish the sentence. (laughs) It will not be the judgment of condemnation but it will be a judgment of rewards. I know, I know, I know. In our society today, our culture today, my goodness, we moved into this mindless idea that everyone gets a trophy. Everyone gets a trophy. I mean, school system now, oh, give everyone an award. Give everyone a... I mean, doesn't matter. No one should be left out. Huh. But in heaven, not everyone is going to get a trophy. <laughs> Jesus said... Among the believers, he's talking to the believers, that those who made it to heaven, those who are saved, he said there will be a merit system. Uh, to be sure, we're not, no, we don't, we're not saved according to merits. That will be falsehood. But when we are saved and make it to heaven, there's going to be a merit system. We're going to be rewarded according to our faithfulness to the Lord. We'll be rewarded according to how much we sacrifice for the kingdom of God. Verse 17 is an invitation to the believers who are saved. Whoever is thirsty, come. Let him come. We, the believers, live in a spiritually parched world and culture, land. Everywhere you go, everything you see, every situation you confront, makes us thirsty for the living God, for he alone can satisfy our longing. Satan tried to tell us that this person can satisfy us, this thing can satisfy us. It's a lie. Only Jesus can satisfy our longing. Father, the Lord said, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. The warning is for everyone, Beloved. Everyone who adds to it, everyone who subtracts from it, anyone who undermines it or sensationalizes it—I don't know about you, but I would prefer not to ignore this warning. I really do. Why? Because Jesus is coming soon, and every one of us will face him. Are you ready for his return? Is your life honoring to Him? This is a great time to take a moment and do self examination. And just pray to the Lord Lord God, examine me, Holy Spirit. Are you in the faith? Are you living for Jesus? Do you give Him your all? your time, your resources, your energy. Or you just stip your hat to him on a Sunday morning. Jesus is coming back sooner or later. And every one of us will have the audience of one. Father God, my comfort is that you, Holy Spirit, know every heart, know every person, know every circumstance. We may fake it with each other. We can't fake it with you. And so I pray in the name of Jesus that you, Holy Spirit, never let us rest until we answer that question so that in the end we are blessed and you are glorified.